Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. We have a gripping personal story on the show this week. Before we get to that, two pieces of housekeeping. One is a favor, if you're willing. We are setting up what we're calling the Podcast Insiders Feedback Group. We did a, you, you may, long-time listeners may have heard that we did a survey several months back. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of you answered the questions, and it's really informed the way we're making changes to the show. And we want to systematize this. So we're setting up uh, this group. Uh, we're looking for volunteers to give us feedback on a more regular basis to answer short, short, short five-minute surveys Every once in a while, uh, we may send it to you every week just after every episode to get your sense, but you certainly don't have to listen to every episode So to fill them out whenever you can. Anyway, if you're interested in signing up for this group, go to 10percenthappiercom slash podcast, 10percenthappiercom slash podcast, and uh, you can be part of a group that makes sure I'm behaving well and that we're, uh, that we're doing a good job here. We care about this immensely and really appreciate your feedback. And if you're not going to join, that's totally cool, too. We really appreciate that you're listening at all. One other piece of housekeeping, new meditation up on the app this week, the 10% Happier app. It's called A Journey to Sleep with Oren Sofer. Uh, sleep meditations have become a big and growing part of our app, and uh, very happy to have Oren uh, continuing his contributions. All right, let's get to Anurata Bhagwati. Uh, she is not your ordinary Marine. She uh, was raised by Indian parents in, in uh, she refers to her mom as a tiger mom and her way of rebelling was to join the Marines. And in many ways, she thrived in the Marines. Uh, she was trained as a black belt and was a leading officer in, uh, in training for close combat situations. But it, but it was also a real struggle for her. And she had to work through sexual harassment and misogyny, she says, uh, while in the Marines. And after leaving... As a result, she says, of calling out uh, sexual harassment issues, she founded an organization to to bring these issues to Congress. And so she's been very active. And in the course of dealing with her own personal trauma and trying to help others with their trauma, she has found meditation to be deeply, deeply useful, although she has uh, a lot to say about the limits of its utility. And she's telling her story now in a new book called Unbecoming, a Memoir of Disobedience, Unbecoming a Memoir of Disobedience. I really enjoyed this interview, and I think you will too. So here we go, Anurata Bhagwati. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So uh, how did you get into meditation? Oh, goodness. I, You know, I started through yoga, actually, uh, maybe 10, 11 years ago. Um, I was in the Marines and just looking for something fun to do. Uh, between training and went to a yoga center and uh, loved it. And it was a classical yoga center. And so meditation was part of the curriculum. Right? So we would start everything with meditation. And that was my first glimpse into what it was like watching the mind. And then several years later, I decided, okay, this this is the thing that's really helped me more than kind of stretching and moving around, which also has been great. But um, I walked away from my military experience with a lot of injuries. And so movement wasn't as available to me as it was, you know, when I was growing up. 
So I had to learn how to sit still and figure that out, figure out, uh, you know, all the dissatisfaction around wanting to move really quickly and not being able to, not being able to run anymore, not being able to lift really super heavy things, right? So what is it like to sit and not be happy while I'm sitting? Right. Yeah. And to wish you were doing other things. Yes. To miss the things you used to be able to do. Yeah. To watch all of that come and go and see how you're feeding it and learn how not to feed it. Yeah. Yeah. And now that sort of my physical injuries have, have I've been able to manage them a little more over the last few years because I've, I've seen a lot of experts. Um, I actually prefer the sitting quietly, the sitting still <laughs> to the movement. So I'm, I'm super curious and I'm sure we'll get this about how you got injured, but but let me just stay with the meditation for a second. Sure. So how deep did you get into the practice? I would say pretty deep. I mean, it's definitely part of my daily, you know, uh, my 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 day-to-day. Um, I've spent several long retreats in, in Massachusetts and California. And um, I, at IMS. Yeah, and Spirit, Spirit Rock. Rock. Yeah. Exactly. And you were saying before we started rolling that one of the retreats was a six-week retreat. Yes, and that was absolutely transformative, um, and I, I didn't want to leave. <laughs> when you say transformative, what can you describe what the transformation was? I mean, in part, you know, there's something really radical about leaving cell phones and laptops behind, even for a day. I mean, we don't have to talk about six weeks, but, you know, this is New York City where people are moving so quickly and doing and we so many things. should say you live here. I live here. <laughs> I grew up here. And, uh, you know, the city has not calmed down since I was a child here. Um, and it, it takes its toll, I think. Uh, even for those of us who are used to the busy, busy and, you know, take subways every day and are used to rush hour and all of that it takes its toll. I think psychically, you know, at the end of the day, like we're really tired. It wouldn't be the same if we were out in, I don't know, in the mountains or something. And so um, leaving all of that, leaving the busyness and committing to committing to not causing harm to other people. In other words, like the sort of day to day, the scowling and the, you know, the elbows and the trains and all of this stuff that we, we do as New Yorkers, whether consciously or not. You know, there's a lot of irritation that we walk around with. Um, you know, at these retreats, there's this sort of commitment to, okay, we're going to be our best, the best versions of ourselves, even if we're grumpy. Right? It's, it's, not hard, it's not easy being on retreat. Being in silence is not necessarily easy. Um, and being irritated with your fellow human beings and not acting on it. Which is the which is the key because uh, irritation is natural, but you know not uh, not kind of feeding the anger, the frustration. Um, that's that's the transformative part I think about being on retreat. Just watching the irritation and and not diving into it, which is easier said than done. You know, like wait, waiting in line for your breakfast, right? And you're all in silence, and it's. You know, it can be considered very boring. <laughs> There's nothing else going on. It's just minute after minute. And you want the person in front of you to hurry the heck up. And he's not. He's taking his time, you know, dishing out his oatmeal or whatever. So then the irritation arises. What are you going to do with it? I mean, the, the line's not going to move any faster. And you've got nowhere to go. So why are you irritated in the first place, right? So that's the kind of thing. And then you realize, like, oh, that moment is is the example or the metaphor for like your entire life, right? Yes. Like yeah. you, that, that oatmeal moment is you can apply it anywhere. Yeah. So whatever's coming up, you can see how impermanent it is. 
you can see that it's not yours. Mm-hmm. That it's just going to arrive, arise and pass unless you feed it with neurotic, obsessive thinking. Yeah, and there's a lot of, it's going to sound a little grandiose, but there's a lot of freedom in that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and all of a sudden then, when, you know, when I'm back in New York City and there are you know, 200 people in a subway car and the car's not moving anywhere and you realize, well, you can be frustrated and start growling the way that many New Yorkers do when a train doesn't move during rush hour or you can just sit there and and be okay with it. You know, this is just another oatmeal moment. It's not going to help to get riled up and rattled and talk about how how frustratingly slow the trains in New York City are. Like that's it's just not going to help because your train is going to be stuck regardless. <laughs> you know, for for me, I would say that a sort of interesting transition in my own practice because I think we've been you're probably you've probably been at it a little bit longer than me, but but around the same time, but has been that when irritation comes up or anything comes up. Sometimes I'm awake enough to say, oh, this is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity. I, I, I get, I've been trained. I've been doing this stupid practice every day for how, how many years. This is what it's for. So let's just actually like let's do it now. Um, and yeah. that is actually a very – for me, that's kind of a life-enhancing feature of the practice at my stage. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of delightful when you can realize that. Because then the, the moments of irritation actually do decrease over time. It's like, oh, yeah, it's kind of cool. <laughs> and that happens again and again. Um, oh, so, so maybe that's what it is. Sorry, I cut yeah, you off, no, but please. I just got excited. I apologize. Yeah. But maybe that's what it is that there's, in my case, maybe I am actually getting less irrit- irritated less frequently. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I'm able to see it as an opportunity because it's not, it's not with me all the time. Yeah. Maybe that would be an optimistic spin on, on my practice. I, mean, I, I believe it. <laughs> Certainly you believe it's true in your case. Absolutely. Yeah. I am I'm less likely to get riled up over any number of matters. I mean, you seem pretty chill, but maybe that's because it's Saturday <laughs> morning at 9 a.m. And Lord knows what you're doing last night. I have no idea. I, no, I mean, it's it's uh, the alternative is is just not acceptable to me. So, yeah, I, I still get irritated and all the emotions are there. I get super angry and super sad and all of these things. But um you know, the zero to 100 that happens with most people and emotions, I'm more aware of, okay, yeah, I'm at 50 now. Can I scale this back before it gets to 100? Like, do I really have to be super enraged right now? You know, and just noticing it. I mean, rage is something that I work on a lot, right? Because I'm usually at 100 before I realize I'm there. Mm. Yeah. And it doesn't feel good. The point is it doesn't, it doesn't feel good. If it, it felt good, it'd be no problem. Well, it does feel good a little bit, right? I mean, self-righteousness Sometimes. can feel good. Um... Until it doesn't, right? So, like, yeah, I mean, I I was, like, immersed in the world of violence and rage. Uh, sometimes fueled it. Sometimes was the byproduct of it. And it it it, it hurts after a while. So I, I, I know that – I mean, there there is – there are great aspects to rage um, when, when I'm feeling um, – like the world needs to change and I'm fired up, you know, literally fired up by a feeling of, of wanting the, the world to be a more just place for people who are hurting. That's where rage can sometimes fuel me in a productive way. But I've mostly experienced it in this kind of um, in this way that eats me up on the inside and doesn't necessarily leave me feeling renewed or productive in, in the sense of like being able to help myself or others. That's what I mean by productive. I've used this quote on the show before. 
So repeat listeners may get annoyed with me, but I'm going to say it again because it bears repeating. The Buddha said that anger, I'm sure you've heard this, has a honeyed tip but a poison root. So the tip of it, that first little frisson of anger of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go get this person or I'm in the right. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to pound the table and release whatever kind of uncomfortable negative energy is building up in me. It can feel good. Mm -hmm. But the rest of it, as you just described, actually feels pretty corrosive. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, when I say I like I, I, I dwelled in it, I, I did for years kind of during the military and then in particular after the military when I was processing a lot of painful experiences um, and I was so enraged and I don't know that there was any way but to experience several years of just misery. That's that was just going to be my experience until I, I found my way out of it and meditation was something that helped me find my way out of it. Right. But I had to I had to go through those years of just being suffering just suffering endless suffering you know whether it was seeking treatment at the va or processing how um you know fellow marines had betrayed me or other women it was uh it was a lot it was a lot to go through i had to you know there's no easy way out okay so now i'm super curious and i'm sure the listeners are super curious so let's just ditch meditation for a second and okay. just go into your story about uh, the military and then we'll, we'll loop back to it um okay. how and why did you join the marines uh, a lot of it had to do with my upbringing, with my parents. So I'm the daughter of two Indian immigrants who are fierce academics, and I'm an only child also. And so kind of having tiger mom and tiger dad putting a lot of pressure on me when I was growing up um, in New York City, again, very fast-paced environment. So I was, I was kind of competing against ghosts from the time I was two or three years old. Um, you know, I had to get into certain colleges, and I and I knew the names of those colleges when I was a toddler. So it was it was that kind of wow. kind of experience. Like wow. this is this is your life. This is what you're gonna do. You know, in your your own personal interests in this thing called happiness. Or this is not a part of my you know our world. You know, and my parents are actually pretty pretty happy people. But for me, it was like, oh my god, there's so much pressure on me, and no siblings to share it with, <laughs> um, which would have come in handy in in some cases. So. Yeah, I grew up pretty miserable, um, not feeling like I had my own voice and uh, my own agency. You know, oftentimes I was making decisions, but it was really my parents' decisions. And so I had no no sense of what whatever this thing called self is. I had no sense of self. Um, and so the Marines was a rebellion. It was a way of fleeing my, my cultural heritage. It was a way of kind of getting back at dad, although I don't know if I really understood it that way when I when, made, when I made the decision. But like they couldn't get their hands on me once I joined the Marines, right? <laughs> and you were in college. I was, yeah, I just finished college. Okay, and I was, you got it. You finished college. I just finished it. And I, I you know, I was making, I was making all these decisions for them, like the college I went to and, you know, I was like probably going to end up with a PhD and married to like a particular kind of Indian man. This is all very, you know, this is what Indian parents decide for their kids, but their daughters in particular. Um, Where did yeah. you go to college, and what kind of PhD would it have been? Would it have you done? Gosh, I, I went to Yale. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, one of the one of the ones that a toddler can remember. Exactly. Although Harvard was really like Harvard <laughs> is the one I should have gone to. <laughs> you're, so you're it wasn't good enough. <laughs> I'm already disappointed in you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hilarious, right? But this is actually true. Like, it's it, and it's true for so many Asian kids. It's and it's tragic because this is no way to raise children. And, and I think the thing that a lot of Asian American parents don't realize is if you want your kid to succeed, even in that high-paced academic world, 
joy helps. It really, really helps, you know, and especially in the long term, right? If you're doing it, if you're running on empty when you're going through these Ivy League machines or wherever your kid ends up, you know, in corporate America or, you know, I don't know, a neurosurgeon, at, you know, Sloan Kettering or something like it's just they're not going to last very long. Something's got to feed it, something real, you know, and it can't just be competition and ambition. It's, it's not going to last. It's going to make your kid miserable on some level. So joy helps. <laughs> That's my shout out to all the Asian American parents listening. But yeah, I mean, it's also true. I mean, I was raised by Jewish parents, uh, one Jewish parent, one non-Jewish parent. They were actually not tiger. They were actually the opposite. They kind of, I would say, if any, if I have any critique of my parents, was that they gave us too much. It was, we were raised in the seventies and eighties when, in that time when, like, there was no control over children before helicopter parenting became a thing, and so uh, we ran wild. But I have a lot of Jewish friends who who had the helicopter parents, and I they've deal with a lot of what you're describing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, growing up um, in New York, I I actually probably knew more Jewish kids than than Indian kids, and there was such a, a symbiosis and a familiarity there, um, and and across parents as well. So my parents, I think, found a community um, here among sort of very you know just parents who cared a lot about their children but put so much pressure on their kids to do sort of extraordinary things at really young ages. Um, you know, and I, I'm, I'm sure it works for some children. Just it didn't work for me. So so when when they found out that you had joined the Marines, which, by the yeah. way, is like a diabolically clever rebellion on your uh-huh. part, uh, when they found that out, because that's so much more sophisticated than a, a a nose ring or uh, whatever else you could, uh, uh, you know, a tattoo on your face or whatever. What was their reaction? I mean, I think my mother was in shock, but I, you know, because they were Indian and pragmatic and they're also economists, which is a whole nother, you know, maybe pathology, but like I had to explain it in very systematic ways to them. So I, I told my father first and then he told my mother explaining it in ways that she could understand in terms of cost benefit analysis then she came back to me and said, oh, you'll learn a lot of discipline. And I laughed my head off because I thought that's how she's that's how she's going to justify this experience as if as if discipline wasn't a part of my life since I was an infant, you know. But OK. All right. The Marines will teach me discipline. But why did you want to do it? I mean, aside from the middle finger to your parents, what was driving you yeah, the, about the why the Marines yeah. specifically? Because you could have joined a punk band or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Uh, the Marines are so extreme and I was such an extreme kid. Like I, I had to see things, um, in their most dramatic versions. And so, you know, if it wasn't the Marines, I probably would have ended up in a war zone doing war correspondence. I just, I just wanted to see things, um, you know, I was, I was interested in like the theater of life. I know that sounds dramatic, but I, I, I ended up seeing G.I. Jane or the Demi Moore film, mm-hmm. um, sure back in the day and was so riveted, you know, it was complete fiction, complete Hollywood. Uh, and like the Navy SEALs were not open to women then, obviously like, it took, it took 20 more years. It took suing the government, which is actually what, what I ended up doing when I, when I got out um, for women who wanted to have combat assignments like special operations. Um, but I was riveted. I was like, I want to do this, you know, which is, which sounds silly. Some people are like, I, what you were just, you know, Moved by a Hollywood movie? Yes, actually. Like, it, it was my version of Top Gun. I remember when Top Gun came out, yeah. and then an entire generation of men wanted to join 
you know, the Navy or the Air Force and become pilots. It actually works. I think that kind of advertising, those those storylines are so powerful for, I think, American kids. Um, and yeah, seeing Demi Moore doing, doing that, proving herself, competing with men, bucking the system, you know, succeeding under some pretty dire circumstances. All of that appealed to me. And did I realize back then that like, the military, the Marines were sort of another version of my dad and all of his oppressive stuff? No, I didn't because I was a kid. But um, I really wanted to fight. I just wanted to fight. I wanted to fight him. I wanted to fight other dudes. I just wanted to fight and prove myself. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. So did you fight? Uh, in my own way. Yeah. I, I've, I fought every day <laughs> for something. Yeah, the Marines. So, you know, I was warned before I went in and I, I even knew it up to like the last minute just from some conversations I had with recruiters. The Marines aren't fond of women. Um, it's the branch with the least number of women. Um, they're still segregated, basic training, unlike the other branches of service, like the Army integrates all of its training um, as well as the other branches. The Marine Corps still segregates boot camp for no good reason. And so... That segregation of men and women, and these are young people, these are teenagers, um, leads to – it fosters a culture in which men both fear and despise women and women don't think they're good enough. Mm-hmm. So it hurts It hurts both the guys and the girls. And um, at the time when I served, uh, combat assignments were off limits to women. So things like you know, the Navy SEALs were not going to happen for me. Um, but neither were like I, I wanted to be a human intelligence specialist, which I thought was really cool. You know, I was going to gather intel on the enemy and, um, you know, and help the infantry uh, acquire its targets more efficiently. Right. Like this is a lot of, sort of military language, but that's what they do. And so human intelligence was off limits to women because you would be attached to an infantry company or an infantry unit. What could you do what, as a woman? in the I mean, at that point. Something like 70%, don't quote me, but something like 70% of the jobs were off limits to women. So it would be a support uh, a support assignment. Um, I ended up being a communications officer, which was not particularly exciting. But what ended up – What does up, that even mean? Um, you know, you would uh, command a radio or a data platoon um, at, at the lieutenant level and provide communications for a larger unit. So if there, you've got guys in the field mm-hmm. and they're guys – uh, I would imagine they're out on a mission. They're radioing back to you. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it would be combat units. It would be support units. Um, I mean, everybody needs to talk, right? Like commanders need to talk to their troops and, and vice versa. So it's, it's a very kind of pragmatic functional assignment, but I wasn't interested in technology. I was interested in like in human behavior and, and like where, where the action was, um, and so the the first kind of taste of that that I got was I volunteered for uh, the Marine Corps close combat system, which was very physical. Um, it's um, it was being revamped at the time, and women were being uh, women women volunteers were being asked to join. And so I was one of the very I was actually the second the second woman in the in the whole Marines to volunteer for this black belt training under this kind of legendary war fighter. He was a reconnaissance Marine, special ops guy, and he, um, he'd he been in the Marines for well over 30 years at that time. He was a colonel, lieutenant colonel by the time I met him. And he was like my first huge kind of war fighter influence um, who really shaped my mind and got me to kind of get out of, the, get out of my head 
and just think in terms of like pure rage, pure violence. You know, when you're asked to to shoot, you pull the trigger. When you're when you're told to when you're told to take the hill, you take the hill. But it was it was very intimate because close combat is. I mean, you're up, you're up, you're basically touching your your enemy, right? You're not like shooting at him from afar. You're you're grappling with him. You're stabbing him. You're gouging out eyes. All of that kind of intimate, impersonal, in person violence, right? Um, but if well, I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. why if if women aren't allowed to have tip of the spear assignments, why would they even allow you into this training? Everything was starting to open up slowly, okay. slowly. So this was about um, introducing female instructors to the Corps also. So I became an instructor trainer. So In close I, combat. Yeah. So then the idea was women would be teaching other Marines these skills. So across the board, every Marine was required to learn these close combat skills. And and it, the belt system is still in place. And, yeah, the system's going really nicely right now. But um, – yeah, even back then, you know, when I when I was doing that, um, the war in Iraq hadn't quite started yet. But a couple of years later, well, even yeah, earlier than that, the war in Afghanistan started first, um, and so women were being deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq very soon after that, and fighting and dying. And so this idea that that women were not in combat was quickly disproven. So did you participate in those uh, missions? No, I didn't. I didn't. I was mostly in Asia and stateside. And I got out in 04 after a lot of hard experiences, personal experiences with sexual harassment. And so that was my kind of my my exit was not one that I was happy about it because I wanted to stay in and deploy and do a lot of things. But. Yeah, because by 2004, you had watched the fall of the Taliban. You had watched the invasion of Iraq and the first flowerings of the insurgency. You'd see, you'd, from a distance, there had been a lot going on. There had. I mean, and from my perspective, I wouldn't have even known that language. It was more that, okay, my friends had started deploying. <laughs> it was as simple as that, right? Like, I wanted to deploy with them. So... Um, and I was in I was in a unit I was in an, an all infantry training unit um, as a company commander, which for a woman was like this huge thing. I was I was training 400 Marines um, in in actual combat skills. So it wasn't just the close infighting. It was um, it was weapon systems like grenades and machine guns and all of that. So these kids, these Marines of ours, were then. Um, being further trained and then deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan. So like my next unit would have been in a, in a deploying unit. But what ended up happening was um, a series of sexual assault and harassment uh, scandals, um, which I witnessed, tried to stop. Um, they were all swept under the rug. And a, the, the sort of the final straw for me was a sexual har- harassment investigation against a fellow officer that I initiated on behalf of a couple of sergeants in my unit. And, you know, I knew that going into it, it was going to be risky, a little bit of a suicide mission for me. But at that point, I'd seen so many bad things happen to women in that unit that I decided it was worth it. And maybe life on the outside was going to be better. So um, and that particular lieutenant was was not punished, even though it was recommended that he, you know, lose his job, et cetera. Um, He was he was promoted and given command of a, a company spent uh, at least 10 more years in the Marines, then got in trouble for something similar and was kicked out. So does that say that the tolerance, there's re- reduced tolerance now than there was back then? Tolerance of sexual but, harassment yeah. or assault? 
I think there's high, high tolerance of it. Um, absolutely. So I ended up, when I left the Marines, um, the treatment or the mistreatment of women was, was high on my, um, list of issues that enraged me. I mean, I was, it was pure fury because there were so few of us, six, six to 7% of the Marine Corps is female. So it's a tiny number. Um, and I wasn't entirely sure what to do with the rage. Um, Except, you know, I had an education, I had some resources, and so with some other women veterans, I founded an organization, and we ended up taking all of this to Congress and putting a spotlight on sexual harassment and assault in the military. Um, And it actually worked. It actually worked. I think it was a product of hundreds of thousands of women deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan, many of them coming home in body bags or wounded um, and the American people, I think, were ready at that time to consider that women deserved better treatment in the military if they were going to serve overseas like that. I know you write about it in your book. Can you tell me a little bit about what you personally witnessed in terms of the mistreatment of women? Yeah, I mean, I sort of went through it day to day. The the as a woman in the Marines, for me, it was, you know, daily misogynistic language, you know, pornography in the workplace. Um, and it kind of, you know, you don't belong here language, which is present in many institutions in the civilian world. But I don't know that it's as blatantly op- out in the open as it is in a, in a place like the Marines. Um, you know, Marine Corps leaders who are largely men almost exclusively um, will probably say, oh, but things have improved. And yet, if you look at the Pentagon statistics, the Marine Corps is still the branch with the highest rates of sexual assault. Um, Right now, um, yeah, even talking about it, you know, I get a little, I have to be mindful. (laughs) It's, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's really hard. Um, the Marine Corps is the branch with the fewest assignments open to women. And so when we sued the Pentagon um, in 2012 on behalf of service women, um, it took only a few months for Secretary Panetta to, to basically side with us and say, OK, we're opening these assignments. It's time. It's time. And this was an ACLU lawsuit. Uh, ACLU represented us. Um, and it took several years even then to slowly start opening up these units. Now you've got women in the infantry, which is unbelievable because when I, you know, when I started out watching GI Jane, there were no women in the infantry. Now there are hundreds of enlisted women across um, many, many uh, combat assignments, it's particularly in the army. The army's doing this much better than the Marines. Um, but the DOD and the VA have, an acronym. I like to say if, if, if the military has an acronym, you know they're serious about something. So the acronym for this entire sort of condition is military sexual trauma, MST. So veterans will know this phrase, but um, MST is conditions related to, to sexual assault or sexual harassment in the military. It's so pervasive that they needed an acronym for it. And this actually started right after Tailhook in the early 90s. Uh, do you remember Tailhook? It was a scandal in the Navy. Yeah, like Navy Navy pilots. Um, yeah, on a on a on a carrier, right? It's actually a hotel. So it was a, a convention. Okay. Yeah, a convention of of uh, of pilots. Um, and so they were all you know housed in this hotel, and 
the women who were present had to run a, a gauntlet in the hallways um, where they were, were groped and assaulted, basically trying to get back to their rooms. And so, um, you know, that kind of behavior is still so tolerated uh, and it's, it's hard to believe except it's such an insular institution. And this is military-wide now. Um, and the thing, you know, we, we raised so much attention um, that the media is all over the stories right now. I mean, there's scarcely a month that you aren't hearing something about sexual assault or harassment in the military. But the big sort of still live story is Marines United, which happened um, about a year and a half ago where 30,000 men, mostly Marines, uh, were online on Facebook. They'd created this page, uh, which uh, was – it contained – Explicit images of service women and civilian women, um, nude photos uh, and calls to rape women, death threats, homophobic and racist slurs. And the media just lost it. You know, it was so hard to believe. And for me, it wasn't hard to believe. I was like, yeah, this is the Marine Corps I know. But I think um, the American public was really surprised that this was happening. And the Marine Corps was kind of caught by surprise. Marine Corps leadership um, because I don't think they understood that the internet was such a powerful force, you know, that they tried to clamp down, you know, certainly federal authorities tried to clamp down um, Marines United as well, but it just kind of appeared in another form online as these sites do. So a little bit like whack-a-mole. What do you think is going on here? Is there something in the inherent in the, in the nature of men, especially in a war fighting context that brings this out? Is it encouraged or tolerated because – we're asking these people to go do horrific things uh, in defense of the nation and uh, let's let them let off a little steam or what, what – I'm just theorizing here. What's yeah. going on? I, I don't think so. I think that would be the easy answer. Um, I think the military fundamentally has just been behind in terms of basic law and policy regarding the treatment of women in the workplace. And there are actual uh, policies that don't apply to the military yet. Like if you're – if you're the victim of negligence in the civilian world, you have access to suing your employer. Right? This is just sort of a basic civil right. You can there civil courts are open to you for redress, off limits to service members. If you're the victim of assault, if you're the victim of medical malpractice, you are just out of luck because the Supreme Court will not allow you to effectively sue your employer, even if they're technically negligent. Um, so there's this culture of once you sign up, you sacrifice many of your rights. And this is true. I mean, you sacrifice your First Amendment right when you're a service member. And that's sort of the uh, the most common example that's given. You can't just say anything you want to your boss. You could go to jail, you know, for 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 disobeying an order, for example. Um, you know, that's not going to happen in the civilian world. So there's a whole different set of rules that apply to service members. Um, when you have so few women in a system that is very gendered, um, where misogyny is used as a, like an, a tool of incentive. And this is true for uh, in the world of, of athletics as well, unfortunately. But um, I don't know what I'm allowed to say on, on here, but, you know, words like, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, when all of these are used as incentivizing words to, to get your, your unit to perform better, um, when you have segregated training and you're literally taught by your drill instructors that women are weaker 
that women are nasty, women are sluts, women are. And these this is this is all literally taken from from the so-called rule book of training Marines. Um, that's going to impact your entire culture. Right. So I don't think it's war fighting necessarily. Yeah, War is nasty and ugly and horrible things happen. But it, if you have a culture in which men are allowed to do things uh, to one another or to women um, and oftentimes encouraged, that's the problem. So you think we can effectively fight wars without toxic masculinity? I mean, I've never seen it yet. <laughs> right. Like we well, saw maybe the toxic some European uh, militaries. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's interesting what you're seeing in, in Europe, you know, with NATO or, um, you know, I've, I've got friends uh, in Scandinavia, maybe not surprisingly, that are working on gender relations in foreign militaries. And women are in positions of power there that, uh, you know, they have enormous amounts of influence. So, you know, gender isn't seen as a sort of, sort of a bad word in some parts of the world. Here, um, I think the jury's still out. You know, yeah, we, and we had a secretary of defense recently who still, even though women were in the infantry, was publicly expressing his doubt about women in the infantry. So, the, again, there's, there's a leadership problem in the U.S. military when it comes to women. Um, and we've got to weed out. We've got to weed out the, the older generation that, that is simply behind. It's not where, where we are right now. You, you – um... You said before that you dealt with sort of daily misogyny, porn yeah. in the workplace, misogynistic comments. But you also talked about sexual assault. Was that mm-hmm. something you saw personally, experienced personally? Yeah. I mean, I I experienced, I would say, unwanted sexual contact for sure. I wasn't assaulted in the military. I was before the military. I write a lot about those experiences in the book. Um, as an officer, I tried to... When sexual assault was brought to my attention in my own units, I tried to get justice for those women and it didn't work. So what I often saw was as a junior officer, I was a lieutenant and then a captain. Um, It was usually mid-grade officers at the rank of lieutenant colonel or colonel that were receiving the complaint, the information, and then sweeping it under the rug because they didn't want – I mean my interpretation of that was they didn't want their units to – they didn't want the news to get around, you know, so they were interested in, OK, how do I become general? Right. If <laughs> if uh, if, you know, my uh, my unit is seen as a bad unit, then it's my leadership failure, which is absurd. Right. It's like they didn't commit the crime. Right. And yet they would see it as a leadership failure. That's and, and that's that's another cultural problem in the military. I, I don't know if that's particularly Marine or not, but we have to change that that perception that if you actually report the assault that you're going to be punished um, as as a commander, as a leader, right? So, so you talked about you, – you left in 2004, is that right? Mm-hmm. And you talked about leaving with physical and psychological injuries. Yeah. Um, at what point did – you know, wh- why did you turn to meditation and how much did that help? And, uh, and yeah. I, I imagine it was among other modalities as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember when my when I launched the sexual harassment investigation against a fellow officer, um, I went back to yoga and meditation, and it was kind of like I, I had. I write a lot about how um, when you are trying to cultivate a killer instinct and be tough all the time, and you know, I was scrutinized like. I mean, guys aren't just aren't scrutinized like this in the military. Every woman sticks out like a sore thumb in the Marines because there's so few of us. And so there's, 
you you know you have to be like a hundred times as tough. Right? You can't you can't let any vulnerability uh, seep through. And so I was I had this really hard exterior, um, and yet I was suffering inside because I was I I was mistreated and I saw so much mistreatment of women. Um, but yoga and meditation offers you the experience of seeing things as they are. Right. So there's no like pain will only hide for us. It's not a permanent thing, right? Pain will find its way out somehow. Your real feelings will eventually be exposed as much as you try and hide them or beat them down. Um, And so I couldn't really afford to meditate while I was in the Marines. I couldn't afford to do yoga while I was in the Marines because it would have made me too soft. That was my, that was my take while I was in by the end during that sexual harassment investigation where I was really a mess. I was commanding troops. You know, there were there's a it was a very dangerous job. We were dealing with live uh, live fire every single day, um, and I was just barely keeping it together. You know, I had to have that tough exterior because I was a company commander, um, but on the inside, I was just falling apart. And so, yoga put me in touch with all of that again, and it it provided me a safe space to to cry. You know, which was really important. Um, and then I realized also, like, if I was really going to heal, like, I had to go, I, I had to go all in into healing. That, um, yeah, there was a lot I needed to to recover from in terms of the pain. So, do you view? I mean, do you still hold the view that uh, it would be inappropriate to be doing yoga and meditation as a warfighter because you would be wouldn't be hard enough? Um, not necessarily. I think it's. I think it's going to depend. Um, You know, I think for me, the thing is, if you're, uh, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm thinking out loud because for me, the jury's out on this, honestly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the mindfulness training that's going on in the U.S. military right now. I teach yoga to veterans, actually, right now. I have been for the last 10 years. Um, if it's used as a healing modality, I think it can be very, very powerful. If it's used as a way to avoid confronting with emotions, I think it's very risky. Why would it be used to avoid confronting emotions? Well, if you can imagine a scenario in which uh, Marines or soldiers in combat are being taught mindfulness practices in order to more effectively kill, that's maybe an oversimplification, but I think a realistic one. Um, I think we've got a problem. I don't know that that's an effective way of uh, maintaining the human spirit. It may work in the short term, may make you more mission effective. Um, I don't know what the I don't know what the cost is to that individual at the I, end of all of that. I've spent some time with the folks training meditation in a military yeah. context. I was I was out in Camp Pendleton um, when mm-hmm. they were teaching there, and I've also had on the show some guests who are involved in teaching mindfulness within the military. And yeah. the way it's always explained to me is not actually how to make people better killers; it's how to make people kill fewer people unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you are able to see your emotions clearly and not be yanked around by them, mm-hmm. you may not be indiscriminately opening fire in a village in the middle mm-hmm. of rural Afghanistan, which of course plays right into the insurgents playbook, which is you mm-hmm. provoke an overreaction by the 
invading or occupying force, and then that overreaction turns the local populace against uh, the occupying force. Mm-hmm. So the the theory you may disagree with it, um, and you would know more than I would, but this is at least the theory is that we'll train troops and make more efficient, more effective less uh, inflammatory decisions in the field and who, because they're now more self-aware, are less less prone to the scourge of PTSD when they return. Yeah, I think the jury's out. I think think we're playing with fire um, when we think it's that simple. I I think, again, I think it's it's, – this is really about short-term versus long-term kind of human effectiveness. Um, I have no doubt that in the short term, soldiers can make more effective decisions on the battlefield because of mindfulness application. Whether or not it can sort of protect one from PTSD, I think that's fishy right there. I think that, you know, and and this is where this is where a lot of um, meditators with with uh, Buddhist roots will, I think. Um, also have problems with with this discussion, and I again, I don't, I don't have any sort of hard and fast, concrete opinions about this. It's just, it's, it's more a feeling based on what I've seen, which is that PTSD is very complex, um, and that when we as human beings cause harm to other human beings, no matter who they are, whether they're on our so-called side or another so-called side, that that takes a toll on us in ways that cannot just be explained by operational orders. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, and I, I have talked, I talked to a two-star general about this who's very upfront with, you know, how uh, how heavy this stuff is, you know? I mean, it's, um, I, I know that there are far too many veterans committing suicide. I know that, when we come to terms with what we have done either to other people or what may have been done to us in my case, um, that there's so many overlapping emotions, that there's so much um, that can um, impede our ability to move on and to help one another and be, be contributing members of society or, or even to our families. Um, and so, yeah, I, I hesitate anybody and anytime anybody's really sort of um, convinced about the effectiveness of a, a, a tool, a spiritual tool, which is literally it, it has its foundation in not harming others. And it's suddenly being placed in an institution in which causing harm is part of the mission. And I don't mean that in a sort of ideological way. I mean, just literally like we must pull triggers. That's part of our job. Right. Um I just think it's complicated. More 10% happier after this. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci, 
My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepti Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, They've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. I wonder now that you've become quite steeped in the Buddhist world, I don't know if you would call yourself a Buddhist, but you go on these long retreats. How do you square that with your past as part of a warrior tradition? And do you, have you let, has that led you to sort of disavow your military past? Or are you of the view that, hey, look, the military is useful and, and important and can be really amazing on lots of levels? How, which, how do you put all that together? Yeah. I mean, I don't call myself a Buddhist because I don't. I just uh, – I don't know. It feels appropriate if somehow – like I – you know, I grew up. I grew up in a Hindu household, and yet even that isn't entirely right. Like it's, I, I, I am growing up learning kind of American interpretations on Asian Buddhism. I think that's that's sort of where I'm where I'm at right now with my education in, in all these traditions. But because um, I know that if I were you know in Thailand or uh, elsewhere, it would it would feel very different. Um, but yeah, in terms of my military experience, I mean that too is is complicated. I, um, I don't look like the typical marine. You know, I don't have the name that most people can pronounce. I, like, there's a lot of things that make me different. Um, you know, and and in the era that we live in right now, this this Trump era, um, I see a lot of things differently. So, you know, I write in the book about how, um. For me, even my relationship to my veteran status has shifted a little bit over the last couple of years because I don't primarily see myself as a veteran. I have certainly in the past, like particularly when I was, you know, in Washington um, representing men and women who had been um, harmed by the military. I was very much veteran all the time. You know, this was 
this is my community. Um, but, you know, as someone who is brown and female, I don't identify as straight. Like there's so many parts of me that feel othered in the society. And those parts of me have been put under the microphone and the la- microphone microscope under, under the last couple of years. Um, you know, the Marines have been most likely to vote for Trump. I mean, there's been all these kind of comparative studies across service branches. Um, somebody who looks like me is not necessarily welcome in the Marines. You know, I mean, I knew this, I lived it. Right. But, um, you know, I think we need to talk a lot more about about what it means to actually serve in the military and be respected as much as the next guy, because it's it's not it's not yet a meritocracy. But do you would you do you disavow violence now, or do you think actually no? If some um, violence is justified, we need to protect our nation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, no, I don't disavow violence. I'm not a pacifist. I don't think I ever have been. I mean, I, I I'm more interested in sort of my personal relationship with violence, not necessarily like. Um, you know, I, I think talking about the United States and military history is is, is, is maybe another another conversation altogether. Um, you know, I mean, I have roots like my my family is from India. My I have two uncles that helped overthrow the the British Empire. They were they were so called insurgents, right? Or you know, terrorists. You can use whatever whatever word you want, right? And I'm, I'm saying that with like a big wink. But um, yeah, I they were freedom fighters. Um, I believe that violence has has a role in, in society, particularly in movements of justice. But, um, you know, state-sanctioned violence against um, particular populations is not something I'm a fan of, right? And again, like I, I primarily in this day and age see myself as a brown person, a person with, um, you know, family that has immigrant roots, someone that is more likely to be taken aside by TSA, um, someone who is more likely to be discriminated on the streets or in my own building, um, this is just the world we live in. So I see myself as a brown person in the United States more than I see myself as a veteran, in in part because for me, white supremacy is the is sort of like the soup that many of us walk through, particularly today. Like it was a little bit under the radar um, a couple of years ago, and now there's so much more out in the open, even in terms of you know dialogue you see on social media. Right, so when you say white supremacy, it. do you mean like actual like marching in Charlottesville or do you mean the fact that whiteness is the dominant culture here? Um, both. I mean, I think whiteness being the dominant culture is, is um, kind of a byproduct of, of vicious white supremacy. But, you know, wh- when we talk about institutional racism, I think that um, it's it's still alive and well. It's oftentimes uh, it looks a little softer than it was maybe 50, 60 years ago. But but absolutely. I mean, I, you know, whether you're talking about police brutality or even in meditation centers, you know, there are fewer, fewer people of color practicing um, Buddhism or sort of secular meditation in the United States. Like, why is that? Right? It's not. It's not. It's not a fluke. It's not. It's not like people, uh, people of color are less likely to want or need uh, <laughs> peace of mind. Obviously. Um, so what? What's that about? Why are there structural barriers to people practicing self care? Right. So it, it can it manifests in that way, too. You've been, by my math, out for 15 years. Yeah. About, um, uh-huh. And you've been doing a lot of meditation. How How is your peace of mind? Um, yeah, it's always a work in progress. I think writing for me has been a huge uh, source of healing and sort of processing everything that 
has happened to me um, over my lifetime. Um, meditation is a huge part of that. Um, yeah, I'm 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 less likely to want to engage in violence. That's for sure. I'm less likely to want to fight. I just I I don't really have the the energy for it. Not in kind of an exhausting way, but I just I don't. Uh, I don't see the need for it in in many ways that I used to. When so, had you been engaging in violence after the military, and in what context? Um, I mean, everything from like wanting to engage in martial arts, like literally wanting to like punch a bag, maybe I see, or a wall, or something, or a face, right? Like there are all these instincts, like, um, which is not to say I got into bar fights. I've never been in a bar fight, but like the instinct to want to really hurt somebody. Which was re- was very much present when I got out of the Marines. That is is practically nil right now. And so even even when you talk about things like politics, or like no matter what side what, what side you're on, people are people use language that is so harsh. It's so violent. No matter if you're left or right, and I I I am literally shocked by it. You know, I I don't want to cause violence to anybody, even the folks that are the most violent. I just I don't I don't have it in me. I'm I'm really thankful. Um, and a lot of that has just been diving into like the darkness of what that rage feels like. That's what comes up a lot on retreat. It has. I mean, it's, it's not, it's again, like I've, I've um, kind of exercised a lot of that out of my system. And, and I mean, I'm talking about over a decade and a half, right? It's not like it happened overnight. I mean, I've been suicidal. I've been homicidal. I've, I've felt all the feelings to their max and, um, and I'm not there today. Thankfully, I'm not there today. Um, you know, I've, I've done a lot of healing practices, um, you know, meditation, Vipassana being one of them, um, yoga being another. Um, I have a service dog now. Yeah, you Duke, know? Sir, yeah. your service dog who's sitting in the control booth yeah. as we do this. So what, what? how does he help? Yeah, so I got Duke through Canines for Warriors, which is uh, the largest service dog organization for veterans in the United States. They're based in Jacksonville, Florida. And they um, they offer dogs to veterans who've experienced either post-traumatic stress disorder or traumatic brain injury or conditions related to military sexual trauma. Um, and they, they uh, you know, I had to apply for the dog and it, it was a little bit like applying for college or something. It was a competitive process. And um, I went last August. It's a three-week training program. And – they segregate their classes by gender, which in this case I think is a good idea. And uh, amazing trainers, amazing program. They match they match the dog with you according to your medical conditions, your lifestyle, your um, your physical abilities. And he was a really great match. He uh, he flies with me. He he digs the subway system. He's he's very good in public. Um, so yeah, he helps me with a lot of symptoms of PTSD. Um, keeps me calmer uh, in crowds. Um, and, you know, as, 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 just as, his mere presence. Just his mere presence. I mean, you're attached. I think uh, one thing I, I would have taken for granted had, had I not known this, um, and now I intimately know it, he's attached to me um, on my left side basically any time I'm with him, which is most of the time. So um, you literally have this battle buddy like within inches of you through throughout your day. Um he like in fact I can't even turn around normally without navigating me or navigating him around my body. So 
um, he's always on my left, like literally right there sitting or standing. And um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. There, there are the few times I've, I've been without him because um, I've had to leave him home for a medical appointment or something like that. Like, I feel like part of like an appendage is missing, yeah. like I'm missing. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very strange feeling. Do you think, I'm just guessing here. I know I've never had this conversation before about the how the mechanisms by which therapy animals could work. But it, I imagine in part just the presence of a calm animal that is there for you, a battle mm-hmm. buddy, is important. Mm-hmm. But do you think the engagement of your own mammalian care systems that's require required to take care of this creature? You have to feed him and uh-huh. clean him and house him and all that stuff. Do you think that too is healing? I think any pet is going to be healing uh, for a human being who's interested in connecting with another animal. Um, but service animals, I think, are operating on an entirely different level. So, like, I've had pets before, and this is this this experience with Duke is completely different from having a pet dog or a cat. Um, he also he learns he learns specific commands related to safety. So, for example, like if if somebody's coming at me. Um, from the front, um, very much like a close combat scenario. It's like, what can you do to protect yourself? So you can actually command your service dog um, to block to block the oncoming person. So literally put his body between you, you and that person. Um, similarly, if your back is facing a lot of people, um, you know, and for folks with PTSD, whether whether it's like sexual trauma related or combat related, the idea of not being able to see what's behind you can be terrifying. That's why so many vets um, or folks with PTSD in a restaurant in a public place have to sort of see um, see doors and windows, like who, who's entering and exiting, right? Um, so there's a command um, to have the dog watch your rear. Well, let's say you're at an ATM, you know, getting cash out of the machine. Um, so he covers your back. The, the command is cover um, for physical injuries. Like he, I'll, I can lean on him also if I need to bend down and get something. There's a command where he takes your body weight. So for a lot of us who have issues going up and down stairs or that kind of thing, uh, the dog will literally take your body weight. So he's he's uh, been trained to do all of that. Um, and yeah, I think there is this sense of I mean, and 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 you know if you if you took like the average pet and put them in positions in which Duke or other service dogs are like they would they just wouldn't know what to do. I think they would flip out at normal sounds, um, the movement of things and people. Um, and and he is amazingly he's transitioned to this loud raucous city in ways that probably most human beings can't. I mean it's it's a transition moving to New York and he's done it pretty well. So. And you yeah. said you have physical injuries. What yeah. is what's that from? From the Marines, yeah. I mean, close I, combat, yeah, the close training. combat training. Like I was lifting guys twice my size, just like ground fighting, and you know, I blew my knee out a couple times, had surgery, and then the, the other one went, and then the shoulder, and you know, I've got lower back stuff. It's it's interesting, and this this will happen to most. I think most folks who've served in the military and done anything remotely physical is the joints just they wear and tear. Far, far more quickly than they would if, if you were not in the military. So our musculoskeletal systems are kind of wasted um, from the weight bearing and from the awkward equipment. Uh, it's just, you know, it, even under the best circumstances, it's not going to fit your body perfectly. Given all that you've gone through, the physical deterioration you're describing, the 
misogyny, sexual, inappropriate sexual contact, the fighting on behalf, the apparently futile fighting on behalf of people who were sexually assaulted, the frustration around not being able to do what you dreamt of doing all those years after seeing G.I. Jane. <laughs> if, you had, if you could go back in time, w- would you join the Marines again? I I would say I would definitely have joined the military. I think I would have joined another branch of service just because I would have been appreciated more. Um, I don't regret it. If the question is, do I regret it? I don't regret it even a tiny bit. Like I, the the things I was exposed to and the person I've become as a result, I'm really proud of. I'm so happy that I can help other people navigate. Uh, really hard issues in their lives. Like for me, the ability to just be a friend or a, a support system to another woman or girl who's been through something like that, that's, it, I feel like it's a gift, you know, like I just really want to be able to let people know they're not alone, that the things that happen to them are not their fault. Um, and that was, that was the gift of writing this book too. Like people often ask me, Oh, like, was it therapeutic? No, it wasn't therapeutic. It was hard as hell, but but I did it because I wanted to. I wanted. I wanted there to be a story that women and girls could refer to and know that they were not alone. And this issue of sexual shaming, which was such a big part of my life, both growing up and then in the Marines and after the Marines, it's not something we bring upon ourselves. Sexual shaming. Sexual shaming. Yeah. Um, the inappropriate things that happened to us: the sexual violence, the harassment, the gazing. All of the things that happened to so many women and girls, and you know, to me, for me, it happened when I was a girl. It started very early on. Um, it wasn't my fault, right? But children have a way of of taking all of that in and assuming that it's because of something we did, you know, um, because we're so we're you know we're just so innocent. Um, you know, I didn't talk about things that happened to me for decades, decades, and. It's a normal experience for a lot of people and for boys too, you know, and we, we have to start, I think, not just sharing those experiences, but really believing and listening to those experiences. You know, trauma is not something that just sort of gets resolved overnight. You know, the mind and the body are very sophisticated systems and sometimes we, we suppress stories. Um, we don't remember things for years because it's our way of protecting ourselves from the hurt. Right. And so, again, meditation is such a gift because, you know, sort of gently with daily practice, you can access some of those parts of yourself um, in hopefully what, what is a, a safe, a safe setting. Yeah. The other thing we train in meditation is a sense of mm, friendliness or compassion. Yeah. Can you muster that for the people who hurt you and for oh, the totally. systems? Yeah. 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 No, I, I have a really positive. I think relationship um, in, in terms of the way I see the military and the way I see military leaders. And, I, you know, I can I can both speak firmly um, and confidently about what I think folks are doing wrong when they're in charge of troops. But, you know, at the end of the day, like one of the gifts of being in the military, and this was long before I discovered, you know, compassion practice or, you know, meta friendliness practice, all of that is um, – I mean, I was just surrounded by so many incredible people and, and, and mostly on the enlisted side. It, just the Marines I served with and I commanded were so hardworking, were so humble. Um, 
in many ways are just like the best of what this nation has to offer. And I wouldn't have met them in the Ivy League, that's for sure. Wouldn't have met them in New York City, that's for sure. Um, and some of them are, are fast friends now, you know, people I can really count on. Um, you know, the institution as a whole, that's different. You know, I have no problem telling a general to his face exactly what he's doing wrong. You know, I mean, this is these are these are institutional failures. But in terms of forgiveness, I've forgiven everyone who's hurt, hurt me or others. Um, and that, again, hard work, right? I can say that as if it was easy, but it took years. I mean, um, they too are part of a system mm-hmm. that you know, the culture was, you know, inserted into their minds, mm-hmm. and they were acting it out. And what? Who knows what their conditioning was? I mean, I'm not defending it. I'm mm-hmm. just saying there's a way in which. Uh, there's a way in which one can have compassion for, even for people who are doing inarguably awful things. Yeah, I mean, and having worked with trauma survivors a lot over the last decade or two, it's I find that one of the things that's helped me the most in terms of understanding even what forgiveness is all about is there's this, you know, forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you've given away any of your power. Forgiveness doesn't mean that somebody else has won or that what they did was right. For if, if, if I'm forgiving in a way that's constructive for me, I'm firmly standing my ground. I am a willing participant in this process. I'm the one who's in control. And again, for people who have had any sense of control taken from them by a violent act right, or by some kind of betrayal – these issues of control are like at the key. They're at the heart of everything, right? So when I choose to forgive, it is on my terms. I determine the distance, like the physical proximity between me and that other person who may have physically or emotionally hurt me. That's really powerful. You know, and and, and in meditation or mindfulness practice, you're so – you're intimately aware of, of like the feelings that are coming up, right? And if I can sense, you know what, I'm feeling like I'm giving – I'm giving power away, then I'm not ready for something. I'm not ready for it. Um, Because when I'm forgiving wholeheartedly, I feel a strong sense of power. And not like hurting somebody. It's not a violent kind of power. It's it's a confidence. It's something that comes from within that makes me feel whole. Mm. So if there's a sense of weakness, something's not quite right yet. I I might not be ready to forgive that person. So interesting. So interesting. Unbecoming, what is behind that title? Uh, for me, it was – I'm laughing because uh, because Michelle Obama, her title is Becoming. And so I feel like I'm always talking about Michelle Obama. <laughs> Unbecoming, um, for me, it's, it's, it's also a Buddhist phrase, which a lot of folks comment on. It, it was about kind of un, unlearning my cultural conditioning as an Indian American kid, um, becoming a Marine – then un- unbecoming all of that, you know, they say, you know, once a Marine, always a Marine, which is in part true. <laughs> um, but really like examining um, what it means to be a veteran and relationships, all, all of these identities, right? So at the heart of this, it's it's becoming these various identities and, and also letting them go, maybe uh, becoming something else altogether. But also unbecoming is part of I – when mean, you get court-martialed for conduct yeah, unbecoming. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Um, so it's very much a military, a military term. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I mean, I get very real in this book. Like there were, there were times where I was no saint, you know, both before I was in uniform and in uniform. And so, um, 
unbecoming is also a very gendered term, you know, sort of used to refer to women over time if they're doing something sexually inappropriate. So there, there's a lot of that in this book as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm sort of brutally honest with myself in terms of decisions I made, whether naively or, or not so naively. Um, and you know, the impact that that may have had on, on myself or other people. So, um, a lot of that goes to the heart of sexual shame again. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, unbecoming, I felt like it really captured the heart of, of, of what that was about. It's a great title. Thanks. Um, in closing, uh, we've talked about the book, but I'd love to love, give people a chance to plug as much as you can possibly plug. So give us everything, your social media, any groups you want us to know about and where to find them, like unload uh, in, in what we call the plug zone. Okay. Yeah, sure. So well, the book is called Unbecoming, A Memoir of Disobedience. It's being published by Atria, Simon & Schuster. Uh, my website is just first name, last name, Anuradha Bhagwati, A-N-U-R-A-D-H-A-B-H-A-G-W-A-T-I. Uh, the organization that I founded that uh, really became kind of the voice of reform for women in the military is SWAN, Service Women's Action Network. They're still in Washington doing uh, advocacy on the Hill. Um, and they're still involved in kind of the last legal fight over integration of women, particularly in the Marine Corps. Um, so their, their lawsuit, Swan's lawsuit, um, which is still the ACLU lawsuit that initially opened up uh, combat assignments to women, uh, the, the sort of version in which it is right now is trying to integrate boot camp in the Marine Corps. So the courts will be speaking about that hopefully this year. Um, yeah. And I will plug Canines for Warriors again if you're interested in um, supporting an organization that helps uh, vets returning from war or with military sexual trauma. They're a fantastic organization, Canines for Warriors in Jacksonville, Florida. Go Duke. <laughs> Honorata, thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. And I think you can see some pictures of Duke up on the internet because after, after that interview, um, we took some, took some pictures and Duke made the cut. Good-looking, good-looking dog. Um, Anurada uh, Bhagwati, a fantastic interview. A big thanks to her. Let's do some voicemails. Here's number one. Hi, Dan. This is Ellen. I'm calling from Los Angeles. Um, I really love your app and your podcast. It's been really helpful to me. Um, so my question is about, I was wondering if you were, if you could talk about the similarities and differences between having a meditation teacher and seeing a therapist. Um, having been in and out of therapy for over a number of years and in a variety of modalities, but never having been um, to see a meditation teacher, I was just wondering if you could talk about that in terms of how your sessions with the meditation teacher uh, go, how long they are, frequency of meetings. Um, your meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, just seems like he would be the pinnacle of meditation teachers. So I was just wondering if you could talk about that. Thanks very much, and uh, keep up the great work. Great question. Really appreciate it. And yes, Joseph is incredible and definitely isn't getting paid enough to deal with me. Um, so I, I, in my experience and, and, and in my opinion, uh, 
therapy and meditation teaching uh, those are two separate disciplines, and 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 there's some overlap in the Venn diagram, which I'll, I'll talk about. But they're they're both, again, in my experience and opinion, incredibly useful and complementary. So I don't think it's an either or. Um, and as I've said many times on the show, I have a, I'm a, when it comes to happiness and well being, I'm a maximalist. I think you should. Uh, investigate all the evidence-based uh, options that are out there, stress evidence-based. And both of these, therapy and meditation, are evidence-based. So in therapy, in my experience, you tend to talk about the content of your experience, things that happened to you as a child, things that are happening right now, how are you dealing with them, uh, your habitual thought patterns, your habitual behavior patterns, and all of that as I said, is incredibly helpful. You get it can reorient you. Although there are in and in the view of therapists themselves some some limits to this. As I think it was Freud who said something like, and I think this quote was in my first book, and it's a little embarrassing, and I can't remember it. It's something that the best therapy can do is bring you from hysteric misery to common unhappiness, or something along those lines. And it's, I've, another critique of of therapy is that it can bring you understanding without relief. And I, that's where I, in my experience, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's always true, in, uh, to be fair, uh, even in my own experience, that sometimes the understanding is a relief in and of itself and changing the way you see things or the way you react to things can be a relief too. So I'm not sure I buy all of the running down of therapy. But I do think meditation is a great compliment in that it really does give you actionable moment-by-moment advice for dealing with all of the difficult and positive stuff that comes up internally and externally uh, through many mechanisms, but one of them is mindfulness, which allows you to see clearly what's happening in your mind so that you aren't owned by it. And so my conversations with Joseph Goldstein, we do talk a lot about my life, either just because he's interested and we're friends or because we're talking about how is my practice uh, showing up or failing to show up in certain key difficult areas in my life. One thing we've talked about a lot in, over the last year is my schedule, how overloaded I am, what can I cut back on, what are my motivations for doing why I'm doing, and how can I more thoroughly explore my motivations through meditation, and how can I use the feedback from my meditation practice, in other words, the self-awareness that I've generated over a, a almost a decade now of city, a daily seated meditation practice, to get a sense as I'm moving through my day, well, what's making me happy? Where am I getting tight? Where am I not being um, that cool uh, to others or myself? So we talk, we talk a lot about that, but we also talk about the less about the content, the psychological content of my mind, but more the process of the mind. And that's what meditation is really orienting you toward, to see that uh, there are some basic fundamental facts about the mind uh, that are worth observing, that can lead you toward, for lack of a less grandiose term, freedom. To see that everything passes, everything is impermanent, including whatever emotional squall you may be experiencing right now. To see that there is really, really on some fundamental level, no you there to experience. Of course, there is a you, right? But overly personalizing 
everything, all of your emotions, just gets you wrapped up at them, gets you further embroiled like a briar patch. But if you can disidentify with your anger, and so it's not your anger anymore, it's just anger passing through, then it, it you aren't taking it as personally and you aren't feeding it so neurotically and compulsively. Also, another fundamental fact about the mind is to see that given the impermanent nature of uh, reality, clinging to things that will not last is likely to produce suffering. So that it, I hope that makes some sense. So there's a difference between the, the content, why you're angry about whatever you're angry about, who did what to you, et cetera, et cetera, and the nature of anger as an impermanent phenomenon that it will arise and pass in your mind that if you cling to as yours is a misunderstanding and bound to increase your suffering. That is more in the realm of the discussions I have with Joseph and also super technical stuff about how long am I sitting? What kind of practices am I doing? Am I spending most of my time doing breath awareness where I'm just feeling my breath coming in and going out? And then every time I get distracted, I start again. Or am I doing love and kindness practice where you – systematically picture people and send them uh, repeat phrases in your mind that are sending them good wishes? Or am I doing an open awareness practice where I'm just noting uh, whatever arises? We talk about that. He's just filled with all sorts of incredible technical advice about these practices because they get very subtle. And he loves to to fall back on, fall back on maybe sounds a little negative, but he, he loves to provide these phrases that he uses over and over again in his teaching, some of them are funny. One that's coming to mind right now is uh, if you point out, you know, how your mind continues circling back on ludicrous or egotistical things. He, one of his favorite expressions is the mind has no pride. So he has these little aphorisms, maxims, whatever, whatever the right phrases, whatever the right word is uh, that he uses that really can, that you can use as mantras in your practice. Um, another one is, for example, to, to watch when a desire passes. So we, when desire comes up in our mind, we can be completely caught up. And in the throes of desire, we can do a lot of shopping uh, or we can make decisions that are um, maybe not in the best interest of our whatever long-term relationship we're in, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, if you sit calmly and pay attention to desire, it will pass. And noticing the moment it passes is really liberating. So he's got all of these little um, phrases and techniques uh, that he's honed over 50 years of meditation, and it's all incredibly useful. By the way, while not everybody can is – I recognize that I'm extremely privileged that I have this one-on-one -on -one relationship with him. He does a lot of teaching in the 10% Happier app. We have – courses, uh, um, several that are up now and more coming where we you, we uh, dig in on several of these phrases that he uses and he expounds upon them and then walk, walks you through them, not only in a video clip interview with me, but also in uh, guided audio meditations. Long answer. Sorry for such a long answer, but it was such a great question. I just had so much to say. Here's the second voicemail. Hey, Dan, this is Mike in Omaha. I'm 26 years old. I've been meditating for about two and a half years. So first, I want to say thank you so much for the podcast, for your books. Uh, it's been a big help getting me going, meditating, and uh, this uh, habit really has changed my life. So I have a question about mindfulness, meditation, and metta. 
in mindfulness uh, meditation, the way I understand it is that uh, by um, attaching yourself, well, not attaching, by using an anchor like the breath, you can become more aware of your thought patterns, um, uh, more aware of your emotions, and uh, more aware of, of everything, really. And by doing this, you can see things more clearly. With metta, I look at that as a way to elicit friendliness towards yourself, towards others, towards the world. And I guess what it comes down to is my question is this. In mindfulness meditation, I feel like we are trying to tease out our biases and uh, get into our uh, get into our thought patterns to avoid delusion, to see things clearly. I feel like in Metta, even though it's for the sake of friendliness towards ourselves and towards others, it is a way of of deluding ourselves on purpose. That um, I guess we're we're forcibly uh, trying to exhibit this friendliness, and that's kind of undermining the whole point of mindfulness. So anyway, I hope that wasn't too long-winded. Um, this question's been pressing me for the past week, and uh, hopefully it makes it on your show. Thanks a lot for all your work again. You did make it on the show. I didn't find the question long-winded at all. I think it's actually really sharp, and I can see how this would be confusing. In my understanding, actually, there isn't a conflict between unbiased, un- non-judgmental awareness that we're cultivating in straight-up mindfulness meditation where you're viewing whatever arises with some dispassion. And metta, or loving-kindness, or friendliness meditation, where you are trying to generate a feeling of goodwill for whoever your target is. And what allowed me to get over the hump to do this thing is that, in fact, the you are not actually expected to force yourself into goodwill. It's simply the effort, the attempt, the repetition of the phrases. So you're picturing – so we in, – in the course of a loving-kindness meditation, often we start with ourselves or actually uh, recently I've been starting with easy people. So one of my – one of our cats, my son, uh, then myself. So I'm primed. I'm feeling reasonably good with the, after the easy people. Then myself, then a benefactor, often my dad, uh, my wife a neutral person, somebody who I see all the time but don't have much connection with, a difficult person, and then all, everybody, people and humans. You are actually, you're not actually expected to feel a certain way. You're just supposed to go through the exercise of envisioning the people in your mind, Repeating the often it's four phrases, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be safe, may you live with ease. Again, I've said this a million times. It's a little it's more than a little sappy. It can be pretty annoying. But it's it's the bicep inner bicep curls of of envisioning the people and sending them uh, sending them these phrases that somehow mysteriously does the work for you. So expecting to feel a certain way is actually probably going to be a hindrance. It's more just trusting that if you do the practice over time, 
something may shift. And it may not sh- well, nothing's permanent, so it won't shift. I don't think it will shift permanently. But I noticed, for example, sometimes uh, I am actually generating quite a bit of goodwill, even for the neutral or the difficult person. Other days, I can't even generate goodwill for my cat. And that's maybe because he has a penchant of, for waking me up in the middle of the night and drinking out of the toilet and drooling. Um, but again, you are not forced to feel a certain way. And you're not, uh, in fact, and you're definitely not reinforcing your biases because when it comes to a neutral or a difficult person, you're uprooting your biases. You're creating the ability over time, the muscle over time to have a baseline sense of goodwill for everybody who exists based on, you know, a pretty logical, in my mind, a sort of logical, it's a pretty logical idea. You know, we're all, we've all been born a human or animal without asking to be born. We're going to die at a, at a time likely not of our choosing. Everybody we know is going to die. Everything's changing all the time. Um, it's chaotic. And there is uh, there is reason to have baseline friendliness. We're all in this thing together. And I think that does cut against some uh, many of our biases to, to otherize people, to want to put ourselves first. Of course, this stuff is still going to happen. But we're talking about marginal changes here that can compound over time. So it's a great question. I hope the answer I've given you is somewhat satisfying, and I hope to understand this stuff even better myself as I continue to write the book that I'm writing right now about kindness, which I'm hoping to finish by the end of the year, and then we'll see. Um, All right. Thank you very much for listening this week. Really appreciate it. And I really want to express gratitude to the people who make this show. Susie Liu's operating the boards today. Uh, Ryan Kessler does a ton of day-to-day work as the chief producer on the show. Samuel Johns, Grace Livingston, both uh, 10% Happier employees who do a lot of the you know vetting of the guests and preparing me for the various introductions and the, and the uh, interviews. Deeply grateful to all those folks for doing all the work they do and to the ABC News Radio hierarchy for allowing us to do it and also to you for listening. And I know I say this every week. I'm going to say it again. If you've got... A moment to rate us, review us, talk about us on on social media. All that stuff really helps. It's a little crass, but I'm asking anyway uh, because I think it serves a larger purpose. Thank you again for – you don't have to do that, by the way. But if you do do it, thank you. And uh, at the very least, thank you for listening. See you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths, and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used. Because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know.
Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.mx slash you know. Hey, grownups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.